Uh, I'm glad you're here. If you've got your Bibles, go to 1 Thessalonians. Um, it's going to be uh, towards the, the last half of the New Testament. Uh, it will be before you get to Hebrews, or uh, if you see Timothy, uh, come back left a couple of books, and you'll be there. It's right after Colossians, First uh, Thessalonians. We're going to start our series in that today. I'll start by telling you, I got lost on my honeymoon. It was uh, the last day. We'd spent five days in Cape Cod, or on Cape Cod, I don't know how you say that. And it was awesome. And, and the furthest I'd ever been from home. We, we flew into Boston. We rented a car, a zippy little car. Uh, I think it was Baby Blue. We drove to Cape Cod. Uh, and we had a blast. We, we saw lighthouses. We went whale watching. We ate lobster. First time I'd ever eaten lobster in my life. And uh, then the five days were over, and we woke up. We had breakfast, and then it was time to drive back into Boston to uh, the airport. Now, let me uh, see if I can help some of the folks in here. In, in 1995, uh, there weren't any smartphones, all right? And it was during the time when, uh, you know, of the state map and the city map, you, you remember that. It's when you went somewhere new, you bought a map, and that's why we had glove compartments. You know, it used to be filled with maps. You remember that? Well, I didn't buy a map, and I was sure that I could find my way back to the airport. You know, I mean, just drive right there. Why did I need a map? I'd never, you know, I'd probably never be here again. Uh, but the truth is, I got lost. I ended up uh, roaming around South Boston, completely turned around. It was a Sunday morning, nothing but empty buildings, no landmarks that I recognized, and I didn't know whether to turn right or left. And um, so, that's a great day six of marriage. Uh, can feel the tension and frustration from the passenger seat. Finally, I found a convenience store, um, and I went in, and I, and I bought a map, and had to figure out where I was, figure out how to get to where I was going, and uh, as an aside, I had no idea the metaphor that would be, end up being for marriage. Um, it was a few years later, we'd find a marriage counselor's office. Turns out he had a bunch of maps. And, uh... But this is the picture, if you will, of First Thessalonians. But Paul is writing a letter to a church that he's planted, and he loves this church, and the letter, in many ways, for us today, is a map. A, a map for the Christian life, a, a blueprint for how to live and grow and flourish and thrive and, and joyfully experience what it means to be in Christ, to, to be saved, to be citizens of heaven, and to endure suffering and injustice and hurt and heartache while we have an address here on planet earth. You know, while mail's delivered to us here in Tyler, Texas in the 21st century, in, in this little five-chapter letter, I, I want to tell you, it is absolutely breathtaking. And, I, and I've been 
praying that you'd have your socks blown right off over the next five weeks. And for some of you, maybe many of you, you feel lost or disoriented. You don't know where you're going or how to get there. Maybe you thought you did, but you can't find a map. Well, I think 1 Thessalonians is one of the greatest maps for us as believers in all of the Bible. And so I'm excited to get started with it this morning. I'm going to read um, all of chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians. It's, it's 10 verses, all right? And uh, I'm going to read those 10 verses. I'm going to pray, and then we'll walk through them. Here's how it begins, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul uh, Silvanius, which is the other name, uh, it's a variation of the name Silas, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers we're remembering you before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers or brothers and sisters, loved by God, that, you, that, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you may become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols and to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, we, we ask that you would you, you'd bless us like crazy over the next few weeks as we study this little, this little letter that Paul wrote to this church. Father, that we'd We'd, just be, we'd be drawn in to these apostolic words to, to believers, to a church very much like Bethel Bible Church. Father, you'd captivate our minds and imaginations. And Father, you'd transform our hearts You'd unleash the power of your spirit in our lives and in our church. We ask for that. 
And so we trust you with those things and pray this the only way we can. In the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit, amen. Well, the Thessalonian church, it's interesting. You could go back to Acts chapter 17. I've got a few verses up on the, on the screen this morning from Acts 17. We may dip into that for a second. But uh, Paul's on his second missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 17, he's just left Philippi, and he comes to Thessalonica. He, he passes by a couple of other uh, cities, uh, doesn't stop there. He's, he's, on a, he's on a destination, it appears. And he goes to Thessalonica. He goes like his habit is. He shows up on Saturday at the synagogue, and he began to teach. In fact, the way that the uh, the text says it in Acts 17, uh, 1 and 2, is that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And then in verse 3, it tells us how he did it. He, he was explaining and proving and proclaiming. And, 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 and it's the gospel message that he was uh, telling them about. That Christ would suffer, it was necessary that he would suffer, that he would rise from the dead, and that this Jesus that you heard of, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the one we've been waiting for. And so Paul does that, and um, he does it for three Sabbaths, and it appears that he stays in Thessalonica for a little time after that, but it says um, that, that uh, people were persuaded, and they, and they joined with him. They weren't threatened. They weren't manipulated. Paul and, and Silas, they, came, they, they invited them. And some of them were Jews, and this is, some of them were Gentiles, and some of them, this is a, not a few of the leading women. This means these were the wives of the, of the Roman authorities in the town. And then the jealous Jews incite a mob. They trump up some charges, including sedition against Caesar. And then Paul, presumably to keep the peace, um, is, is uh, ushered out of Thessalonica, sneaks out of Thessalonica, goes on down the road to Berea. Turns out the Thessalonican Jews will follow him to Berea and, and cause trouble there. But at some point, what Paul does really soon after that is he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica because he wants to make sure they're, they're anchored, that they have a pastor, that they have somebody that's helping them navigate this new Christian life that has come to them. And then Timothy will leave. He'll rendezvous with Paul again back in Corinth, a chapter later. And tell him the report. And then Paul will sit down and he'll write a letter. And what's interesting about Thessalonians is this first letter is, is probably one of Paul's earliest letters. Depending on how you date Galatians, it's either his first letter or the second letter that Paul will write. And not only that, is he, he writes it really within months of having been there. It's, it's a it's a letter that's fresh. The people are still in his mind. He can still see their faces. He, you know, this is a new church, and Paul's writing a letter very soon to them. 
And so he says, hey, listen, it's Paul and Silas and Timothy, and we're all back together again, and we're, and, and, and we're writing to you, Thessalonians. We'll remind you, you're in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and grace to you and peace. And then look what he says in verse 2. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. One of the first things to see is that Paul's a man of prayer. I mean, Jesus modeled this. Paul lived it, as did Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets and all the disciples. They, they genuinely believed that prayer was sort of the frontline activity. It, it's the most important ministry in which we can be engaged. Paul absolutely believed that. Martin Luther is famous for saying, work, work from morning until late night. In fact, I have so much work to do that I shall have to spend three hours in prayer. It's not how we usually think about it. Sometimes I'm too busy to pray. Hudson Taylor said, the prayer power has never been tried to its full capacity. If we want to see mighty wonders of divine power and grace wrought in the place of weakness, failure, and disappointment, let us answer God's standing challenge. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Oswald Chambers, we lean to our own understanding we bank on service and do away with prayer and consequently, by succeeding in the external, we fail in the eternal. Because in the eternal, we succeed only by prevailing in prayer. I'm reminded, I was reminded this week. Just, so like, like it hit me with a two by four across the head. Prayer. Look at verse 3. If you want a metric for success, this is a good place to start. It says this, remembering before our God and Father, your, and then he's going to give us these three things, work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. One writer said, there's not, nothing like the local church when it's working right. It's beautiful. It's indescribable. The power is breathtaking. The potential is unlimited. In every church that Paul planted, these were the three virtues that he looked for above everything else as the measure of spiritual vitality, of, of the success of that ministry. Colossians chapter 1, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. Hebrews 20, uh, to chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider 
one another in order to stir up love and good works. So don't pass by it. Corinthians 13. So faith, hope, and love, these three. The, the, the phrase these three, it demonstrates beyond question that these, you know, spiritual uh, 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 values, these, these um, spiritual qualities, this, this is what measures success. So it's, it's a game changer. Let us sink in for a sec. How many churches in ministry do you know that are laser focused on, on faith, hope, and love as being the true measure of success? I would say not nearly enough. Not today, not historically. Right here, Bethel, let me tell you what we're doing. We're really trying to work this out. We're trying to figure out how as a church we evaluate the health of ministry at this church. How do we determine the health of a campus? And in beginning of the year, we, we put together a, a group of people, people, uh, leaders from, from every one of our campuses. They've been meeting on Wednesday nights. We're calling it a campus health assessment team. We're trying to figure this thing out right now. Are we healthy? How do we become more healthy? What are the things we're pursuing? Listen, that numbers, growth, giving, baptism, we're not saying those aren't important. Of course not. Paul wouldn't say that. But he, but he was never controlled by those things. He understood that these three vital Virtues, if those were in place, the rest would, would flow in God's timing and in God's will. With these in place, faith, hope, and love, guess what follows? Evangelism, discipleship, growth. So what does Paul mean when he says the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness, of hope. So most directly, let me show you this. Look at verse 9 with me of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If we could put verse 9 up there. So think about it this way. The work of faith. He gives us these illustrations. He's going to unpack it in verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, the work of faith translates down in verse 9 as how you turned to God from idols. The, the labor of love. Notice it goes on to say, to serve the living and true God. That's your labor of love. And the steadfastness of hope in verse 10 is to wait for his son from heaven. Let's look at the work of faith, or maybe better translated, the work produced by faith. Men and women, what he's talking about. Men and women, believers, being supremely satisfied in the person of God. The work of faith, you go down to verse 9, gives us a picture of it. It's turning to God from idols, not the other way around. They're, they're not 
turning from their idols to God. They're setting that aside. They're going straight to God and setting everything away. They're trading up in their life. When they heard of the true and living God, they were eager. They threw aside everything in order to take hold of God who trumped everything else in their life. I think speaking both of the when they first came to faith and this is their ongoing spiritual growth, what it means to be satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. A.W. Tozer said, God formed us for his pleasure and so formed us that we as well as he can be in divine communion and enjoy sweet and mysterious mingling of kindred personalities. He meant us to see him and live with him and draw our life from his smile. I love that phrase. Draw our life from his smile. See, the danger of idols They seduce us from the smile and and they get us in a handshake and it's a bad trade. So what are the idols of today? Well, like every generation, there's a lot of them. Money, cars, homes, jobs. Some of them are, are really respectable idols. Children, Spouse, ministry, some of them can be baser, drugs, pornography. But people's idols can vary dramatically from person to person. Here's a couple of questions to help us identify the idols or potential idols in our life. Here's the first one. Well, what things or Persons or activities save me from the sheer terror of having to trust God alone. We'll say it again. What things or persons or activities save me from having to uh, trust, the, the sheer terror of having to trust God alone? C.S. Lewis, he said, the, the, our greatest problem in life is not trusting God, it's trusting God alone. Trusting God often is no problem if we've got, you know, some secondary plan B, you know, in place, just in case he doesn't come through. There can be this deep panic that rises inside of us when we are in the position where no other provider for our material or physical or emotional or relational welfare exists except in the unseen and often unfelt God. Here's how Tim Keller talks about idols. He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. I'll know I have value. I'll feel significant and secure. If anything in life becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness your meaning in life and identity, then it's an idol. In other words, idols occur 
when we cross over from desiring something for our happiness to requiring that same thing for our happiness. What are the idols in your life? And, and listen, by the way, if you sit here and go, you know what? I'm totally good. I answered that. I don't have any idols. So here's the thing. It's not true. Just ask somebody that knows you, all right? They'll help you with the answer. Here's a second question for you. What things, persons, or activities cause me to become bored with God? Hmm. See, our, our, our hearts, the human heart, it is not capable of carrying on two true love affairs at the same time. It'll either be our love for God or our love for something else that will cause us to become increasingly bored with God. That's why John writes in 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. Anyone that loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John's not saying we can't enjoy the things of the world. Listen, God richly blessed all things for us to enjoy. The problem arises when we begin to hold on to those things so tightly. Here's some Jonathan Edwards for you. Ready? The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Fathers and Mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams. God is the ocean. It's the work of faith. Setting aside those things that we so easily cling to or that cling to us. Turning to God. Well, secondly, he talks about a labor of love or a labor motivated by love. But being joyfully and with abandon given to the work of God. It, it comes from the overflowing of being satisfied with the person of God and, and then you, with, with sort of this joyous abandon, you, you, you launch into fulfilling the work of God to serve the living and true God, verse 9 says. It's interesting to note the word for labor there. It's different than the word for work used to describe uh, faith, the work of faith. This word labor, it carries the idea of working to the point of weariness. In fact, John chapter 4, verse 6, when Jesus goes to the well in Samaria, he's weary. 
ministry. And by the way, we're all called to ministry. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says you were created for good works that were prepared for you beforehand so that you'd walk in them. You've been gifted by the Spirit of God to walk into those good works. And the point is this, it, there's a cost to it. it. It costs in terms of physical exhaustion. It can be emotionally draining. There's, there's spiritual exertion. There's lost sleep or late nights or way too early mornings. It, you can be misunderstood or, or feel neglected. You, you, it costs in terms of showing up and, sh- and showing up and showing up. Sometimes with little to no visible fruit. If love for a person, love for Jesus, is not the primary driving force behind the service, it'll only be a matter of time. You just throw in the towel. I'm done with this. See, in Paul's mind, it's connected with serving the living and true God, not motivated by you know, trying to get God's blessing. You already have that. Thrust them forward to make the living God visible. That's what we're trying to do. Because of his overwhelming grace and our gratitude and a joy that comes from the wonder that all the gospel's done for them and continues to do. Well, the third one is steadfast hope or endurance that stems from hope in Christ. And what he's talking about here is this believers who have a perspective-altering anticipation of the return of Christ. They're, They're... The perception, how you see the world, the lens through which you look, changes everything in light of your anticipation for the return of Christ. Without it, we'd never become all that God has designed us to be. It's just difficult to overstate. Steadfastness of hope. So, so, patience and endurance, perseverance of hope. It's, it's the super glue. It, it's, it's the longing that's transformative. The word steadfastness, one of the greatest words in the New Testament, literally means to, to remain or to abide under. It's used to describe a plant that's crushed under walking feet but keeps rising up again. It's truly one of the things that most stunned unbelievers watching the early Christians. It's routinely Christ followers. They'd go to their deaths. They'd be singing. Often they were treated with extreme cruelty or, or the just outlandish injustice. They wouldn't retaliate. 
Their response was to pray for the authorities and honor them. Nowhere will you find Paul write in the New Testament. Nowhere will he say, hang in there. Your circumstances are just about to get better. There's no chapter and verse for be patient, your blessings right around the corner. I wish there was. One old commentator, he said, the early church thought more about the second coming of Jesus than about death or about heaven. The early Christians were not looking for a cleft in the ground called a grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. They, they were watching not for the undertaker, but for the upper taker. See, living under the influence of Christ's imminent return rearranges priorities and pursuits. The conviction that Jesus Christ is returning, that this was renewing, that this, this is renewing, it renews hope over and over and over and over again. And the lens of the return of Christ through which they viewed life profoundly affected the life that they lived. It profoundly affected the joy that they experienced and the love that they poured out for one another and the faith that they clung to. It transformed their life. Paul's going to say it sounded forth into the world. Well, in verse 4 he says, I'll look at this quickly. He says, for, for, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. Brothers, brothers and sisters, Loved and chosen. So I'm not going to spend a great deal of time here. You could write out, out identity in, in verse, next to verse 4. This is who you are. Your brothers, your, your sisters, you're loved by God, you're chosen. It's this strange mix he's writing to of Jews and Gentiles and, and Romans. You know, they're enemies of each other. It's like back in high school. You know, you had the ropers and the jocks and the preps and the stoners. Back in the 80s, now everybody's just the same, I guess. But they're all brothers and sisters now. Their identities change. They're loved by God. So one of the reasons I think, anybody watch The Chosen? Okay. If you, if you hadn't watched it, and you, you know, you're kind of like me, I, I didn't watch it for a long time because I'm like, mm, those things are usually dumb. This is not dumb. This is really one of the most incredible things I've seen. It's just so well done. And one of the things I like about it so much, it's been so good, is that it's portrayed in this beautiful way what it means that God loves you. Can you sort of see it? Played out that the pages of Scripture kind of come to life on the screen for us, and then we go, oh, oh yeah, that's what that means. You struggle with that. We all do. So God's love it utterly and completely is overwhelming, and, and we have to be overwhelmed by it. We couldn't convince ourselves of it if we were not overwhelmed by it. Brothers and sisters, you are loved by God, Paul says. That's who you are. And chosen. Interesting. 
that they named the show The Chosen. It's the word for election. And, and I know, I didn't write it, Paul did. I'm just telling you what he said. Listen, election's not meant to be feared or it's not meant to be puzzling. You know, famously, it's not a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery to be adored, to be embraced. It's in the context of, of his love for you. And you see it, you know, back to the chosen. You see, it doesn't bring any arrogance or pride or anything. If it does, you don't understand it. And over and over again, it's like, what? Why would he choose me? It bathes us in humility. It clothes us in the assurance of God's love. And then Paul's going to say to his readers, I know that you're chosen. I know this. How? Look at verse 5. It says, because the gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. The, the Word of God, everywhere Paul preached, he preached the Word of God. In synagogues and houses, by the river, in the marketplace, everywhere. It was his ministry. There's no gospel apart from the Word of God. And God's Word opened up for people so that they could know the God who, who uttered those words. And, and, and when that happens, when, when God's words open, like, like it says in Acts 17, explained and improved out, it, it becomes accessible and it goes off like a bomb in our lives, in our church, in our families. Hebrews 4, the Word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged Sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. We're all naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account. Let me just tell you something. You've heard me say it. If you haven't heard me say it, then I haven't said it enough. The Bible is not concerned with you being a better version of you. A more moral or put together or socially acceptable or stay out of trouble or don't be naughty, you better be nice because Santa Claus is coming to town version of you. The Bible doesn't care about that. Here's what the Bible's interested in. Here's what the Bible is aiming at. It is aiming at putting you to death. And then bringing you back to life, new life, a new creation. So when you get up in the morning and you read God's word, and I hope you do that, I hope you would do that. And you're praying, put, put, the, put to death the old man. Breathe life into the new man. I want to walk in your spirit today, not in the flesh. I, I'm a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And we pray, God, by your spirit and through the power of your word, breathe the life of your son Jesus into me. I want to walk in him right now and the rest of the day. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. There's the word of God, there's the power of God. It says, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with conviction. Call it what you will. Conviction or passion or zeal or enthusiasm, unction. It's the fire of God in the soul of man. Jeremiah says that I tried not to mention him or speak his name anymore. If I did that, there's this in my heart a burning fire. Shut up my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. I can't. I have to speak it. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they knew the gospel. They knew it very well. But they loved it, more importantly. Third, I want you to see the glory of God. The word of God, the power of God, the glory of God. And it comes in that phrase right at the end where he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In other words, Paul is saying, we were on display that the invisible God was visible in our ministry to you, in the gospel that we delivered, in the life that we lived, in, in how we loved you. And so what John writes in 1 John 4, 10, 11, 12, you didn't love God, he loved you first. And he sent his son. And then it says, therefore, beloved, since God so loved us, and we think it's going to say we ought to love God back, but that's not what it says. Therefore, beloved, since God loved us, love one another. And in doing so, he says in verse 12, we make the invisible God visible to those around us. And what's made visible? Well, that God is stunning and he's breathtaking and astonishing and surprising. And, and this is the invitation to, to get close to it, to increase your proximity to other believers. Listen, left to myself, I, it's a little something about me. Left to myself, I'm a spectator. I'm naturally drawn to the back row, the back of the room, the corner of a coffee shop. Thank the Lord, and I mean this, thank God that he did not leave me to myself. Instead, he put me up here. The invitation is this, lean in. Get, get close. Well, how do you do it? Well, some of you, you come in here and sneak out of here and oh, went to church and did the same. Listen, I it's great, I'm glad you're here, but there's more. You got to lean in, let's get close. If you're not in a life group, get in a life group. Or if you're not in a Bible study, get into a Bible study. Get around some other folks. Or start by coming to Wednesday Word here on Wednesday nights. You think, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, email Chad, chad at Bethelbible.com. Listen, you can even email me. Ross at Bethelbible.com. It forwards the chat anyway, but <laughs> you can use it. Take the risk. 
Listen, I know the fear, the anxiety, the nervousness, the insecurity, all of that you feel right now. Even just thinking about it, I know, does that to you. But all of that, I promise you, pales in comparison to what you'll experience when you get there. And to be clear, social media, Facebook, is not community, not what we're talking about here. It's safe, but it can't satisfy the needs of what it means to be a new creation. And if you've been burned in the past, or let down, or disappointed, or hurt, let me just say, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. But that's not an excuse. You've been using it as an excuse, and it's time to set that aside. Because here's the deal, that's about this life in a fallen world. It is true, people are disappointing. It is an old tale. There are a thousand cliches that describe it. it. Leaves you on the outs, though. God feels far away, and he's hard to recognize. I don't even know what he's like. And you need to glimpse his stunning, breathtaking, astonishing, surprising glory. And the very best view of God's glory is in community with other believers. Community for some of you will be the sunrise that you haven't seen in a long time because the fog has been too thick. Paul invites you this morning, take, let it take your breath away. Lean in. Get close. Send the email. Make the call. If you're lost this morning, it may be why you are. Paul's given us a map. Let's put up the beacon. You shine the light. Let's walk to it. Let's go. Let's do this. Well, I'm going to stop there. I'm out of time. I'm going to pick up in six and seven next week, and we'll get there. I have a feeling I'm going to be really behind this series, but sorry, if I get too behind, I'll just get Chad to catch me up one morning, so. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, we've come here this morning to worship you. It's why we're here, and might be a lot of other things mixed into it for each of us, but Father, when we strip all that away, we're sitting here because we're acknowledging that you're God, and, and we're not. We're acknowledging our need for your grace. And that there's no salvation apart from or other than the sacrifice of your son Jesus. The way that Paul writes, he became our sin and died our death. The hope of his resurrection being our resurrection. And Father, we want to be people who labor in love and live a life of the work of faith. And Father, that we're steadfast in our hope for the return of Jesus. Would you kindle all those things in us? Father, would you draw us to brothers and sisters in Christ? 
Maybe there's somebody this morning that needs to be shaked up, and would you do that and give them the courage to walk across the room? And Father, would you help us have the eyes to see, to be stunned, to have our breath taken away, to be astonished all over again, surprised by your glory. Father, we ask for that. We ask for it the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit, amen.